Attention architects and creative minds, get ready to supercharge your brand with Build Your Brand, the podcast that's unlocking the secrets of branding success for creatives. Hey there, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my friend, architect marketing expert, Jeff Eccles at Build Your Brand Podcast, where he explores the captivating stories of the world's top brands and transforms their lessons into powerful moves for small firm architects and creatives like you. In season one, Jeff shares the thrilling tale of Southwest Airlines, where he dissects their journey to the summit and distills it into strategies tailor-made for you. It's important to keep in mind that companies like Southwest compete in the real world, just like you, and face real-world challenges, just like you. You might be surprised at how similar those challenges are to the struggles that you grapple with on a day-to-day basis. Don't miss out on your blueprint for success. Subscribe, tune in, and let's build your brand together. You may have noticed that the very best brands in the world are also known for having somewhat unique corporate cultures. That's often the glue that holds everything together when they encounter those rough spots. We don't do it because it inconveniences the passengers to whom we are primarily dedicated, the short haul, uh, frequent flyer. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Your Brand today. Remember, no matter the size, the journey's the same. Your brand's journey to the top starts here. If I could wave a magic wand, I would just remove whatever baggage you have in your mind about what it means to sell. I would just remove it all. Everything you've ever heard about selling, if I could just take it away and just say, you're good enough. You'll do. You just show up and be you. Show up and have a conversation. Your job is to help this person. And if helping means them hiring you, great. If it means you referring them to somebody else, great. Just show up and help. Be yourself. Keep it conversational. Welcome back to Context and Clarity place where authors, experts, and thought leaders come to have engaged conversations with entrepreneurial architects just like you. I'm Jeff Eccles, and every Tuesday afternoon on Context and Clarity Live, my co-host Katie Kangas and I, and our live audiences that are joining us from all across the internet, we all have a conversation with a special guest to search for clarity around the things that matter most to you, the architect, no matter what your context is. In this episode, we talk with Blair Inns, the author of The Win Without Pitching Manifesto and Pricing Creativity. Blair is a bucket list guest for me because I believe that every architect needs to read and adopt what he writes about in The Win Without Pitching Manifesto. All right, welcome back to Context and Clarity Live. We have special guests every week, and I'm joined every week by my co-host, Katie Kangas. Welcome, Katie. Glad you're here today. Good to be here. All right. Our guest today is an author, a trainer, and a coach. He's on a mission to change the way creative and professional services are bought and sold. And I know when I said that, bought and sold, that may have raised the uh, the hair on the back of your neck. You are, after all, most of you are architects, so I get that. But he's he's here to change the way your services are bought and sold. That's what happens, by the way. 
Uh, he's the co-host of the popular podcast with David Baker, Two Bobs, Conversations on the Art of Creative Entrepreneurship. And he's the author of Pricing Creativity, A Guide to Profit Beyond the Billable Hour, and The Win Without Pitching Manifesto. He's the founder of the sales training and coaching organizations, Win Without Pitching. Blair Inns, welcome to Context and Clarity Live. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Katie. Glad to have you. I'm happy to be here. It's great to have you here. And you've traveled a long way. Relative to Minneapolis, <laughs> at least, you've traveled a long way to get here. So wh where are you exactly? Well, it was a five-minute drive from my house to my studio, so it wasn't that long. I'm in uh, Caslow, British Columbia, Canada. So if you know Vancouver, I'm a short 11-hour drive from Vancouver. That's, that's uh, yeah, five minutes isn't bad, is it? Yeah, we're not even a town. We're uh, Technically, we're a village of 976 okay. people. Okay. Population's gone up since your interview with Mark. It was just 900 back then. <laughs> was it? <laughs> <laughs> well, they've, they've been proliferating. It ebbs so. and flows. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> COVID, COVID happened and uh, and drove the population up. There you go. Yeah, it did indeed, actually. Yeah. I'm sure it did. Well, it's it's great to have you here. And, um, you know, as you know, as we talked about, I I really think that what you have written, not only in Win Without Pitching, but certainly Pricing Creativity as well. I think it's very, very important for our audiences, for people that provide the services that we're talking about, um, certainly architects, but but beyond. I know that you focus or or, or uh, help people in all over creative and professional services. So what what do you think, you know, this is this is certainly a loaded question. It's a big question, but what do you think is the the biggest threat to what essentially are small business owners, right? All all of the these small firm architects that make up this community are small business owners. What do you think is the biggest threat to their livelihoods um, when we think about how they do business? Yeah, I mean, we could talk about topical things. Um, one of the things that's top of mind for me these days is payment terms. I don't know how much, uh, if you're a residential architecture, you're probably not running into that. But if you're doing work for corporations, you might be running into longer and longer payment terms. I don't know. I'm a big fan of the small business owner of entrepreneurial businesses. I think I think they tend to be more resilient than larger companies in some ways. I remember a, a friend of mine who owned an ad agency, uh, a very small ad agency, said to me years ago, uh, it was probably around 2008, he said, ah, recessions are for other people. We're um, in a small business. You know, the, the market's just so big that it just means you have to work harder. Now, I, I think that might be true in a marketing um, services business. It's far less likely to be true in an architectural business because of, you know, when we head into a, a, a down economy or even a recession, you know, sometimes building just stops, right? So that, that type of spending just grinds to a halt. So I wouldn't say that's the case for architects, but I do like the flexibility that is afforded uh, to small business owners, as long as you have cash in the bank, as long as you have your basic business fundamentals down, I would say most periods. And I think we're in one right now. I'm I'm taking the temperature of our clients and my my peers who also sell into this space to get a sense of what's going on. And there's definitely there's no panic in the market right now, but there's definitely a softening. 
there's a conservatism on the client side. Sales cycles that used to be X are now 1.5 or 2X. So there's just a lot of caution on the client side. So a big rambling answer to your question, Jeff. But I think, you know, the real threat to small business owners is from within. It's especially if you're a creative, like an architect, you decide, okay, I'm a uh, you study as an architect, you identify as an architect, this is what I love to do, this is what I was put on this earth to do, perhaps. And so you decide to go out on your own and launch your own business. And I would say the, the lesson that is not learned fast enough is to upskill on the basic business uh, skills. Uh, so I think when we go into a downturn like we are now, the most threatened small businesses are the ones that A, don't have enough cash in the bank and B, uh, don't have a sense of the fundamentals of the business, of the financials. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And we, I would imagine everybody in the audience kind of agrees with that. It's, we talk about that from time to time as, you know, as, as architects. And it, it's true in other professional services as well. You, you get trained in your craft, right? You get trained in, in uh, what it, takes to become an architect, not in the business of architecture. That's That seems to be a gap for almost all of us. So when if the sales cycle is, has gone from X to 1.5 or to 2, and, and for those of you that uh, that don't like sales, for those of you that, that, that um, you know, some of these conversations may be a little bit foreign to you, one of the things that, that the rest of us will talk about is the fact that time kills deals. So if if we've gone from X to 1.5 or, or that sales cycle is starting to extend or, you know, maybe to translate for the folks in the audience, hey, you sent out a proposal, which is probably something we ought to talk about, but you sent out a proposal and you used to get a response in a couple of days and now it's been a couple of weeks or, you know, whatever that timing looks like. What do we do? What do we do to remedy the fact that, that sales cycle is uh, is extending? And that's that tees you up for, <laughs> for it's kind of a softball. But um, but what do you what do you do to remedy when things are slowing down and it the the process isn't working as well as it it did a couple of months ago, maybe? Well, so an extended sales cycle might be um, increased time which you hear back from a written proposal, but it, it's really just the length of time from when you start talking to the client to the when they make a decision. The common mistake that we make when deals go dark or slow or slow down and we start to lose momentum, and as you said, Jeff, time kills deals, especially late stage deals after the client has decided, yes, I'm going to do this. I'm going to hire an architect like you, not necessarily you, but like you, and I'm going to go ahead with this project. So after this intent, uh, momentum is really important. And so the tendency is just irrespective of you know, whatever the macroeconomic conditions are, whether it's good times or bad times, the tendency is when things start to slow down and a deal goes dark. And we've had this, you know, if you've been in business long enough, you've had this happen probably multiple times. You're talking to a prospective client who's very enthusiastic and really excited about the possibility of working with you. It seems like it's you and only you. They're either not talking to somebody else or they've already eliminated those alternatives. So it feels like you're they're going ahead with you. They might even say, okay, you're you're my person. We're we're gonna do this. We're gonna work together. Send me your proposal. And then so everything's proceeding to a close. And then you don't hear from them. I'll get back to you in a couple of days. And they don't. And then 
you reach out, hey, just checking in, how's, you know, any, you know, I hope you had a great weekend. All these like fake niceties, faux niceties about, uh, hey, what about the proposal? So that happens fairly often. And it's, it's a function of, um, we all know what buyer's remorse is. It's the remorse we make after we make a big purchase decision. But that actually sets in before the client decides, after they form the intent and before they say yes, before they commit. <clears throat> so that's why momentum is really important in late stage opportunities. If you leave somebody alone long enough, they start to think of all the reasons why this might not work or the costs, the costs or the consequences of failure. And our tendency in that, those situations is just to, to plaster the fake smile on our face and leave these voicemail messages and send these texts that are overly polite. And we, what we don't appreciate is the client, when we're leaning on this personal stuff, hey, hope, hope, hope everyone, hope, how are your kids? You know, all this stuff that is taught in some schools of selling. What you're doing is you're, you're imbuing the decision the client has to make with this excess emotional weight. So they have a, you can think of it like a computer. They have this decision that they've got to make. What are the pros and cons, et cetera. But it's a wet computer that's prone to these things called emotions. And buying a big purchase, especially you know, hiring an architect, designing your probably the first home that you've had built for yourself, et cetera, um, that's a big emotional decision fraught with all kinds of risks. So you imagine this person has gone dark. You imagine that they're afraid. They have this fear of making a mistake. And we keep reaching out to talk to them. And the fact that they don't want to communicate back means that they're, they're afraid of, they're afraid to give us honest feedback. And the reason the client's afraid to give us honest feedback typically is we have imbued too much emotions into the sale. We've been too needy. We've wanted this too bad. So we keep checking in and the client just retreats further and further and further into their cave. So I like the approach of at some point you have to realize, all right, this thing's stalled. It's either not happening or they've hired somebody else. And so, and maybe Shannon's talked about this before. We have this magic email. You basically send them a note saying, hey, I, I get it. You, um, I haven't heard back from you this project. I'm going to assume that you've gone with somebody else or your priorities have changed. If um, you know where we are, if we can be of help in, this, in the future, feel free to reach out. And we call that the takeaway email or the closing the loop email or the million dollar email because it generates a lot of money, not like collectively across a lot of people who've done it. The power of that email is in one stroke, in one simple email, you, you basically say, hey, I get it. This, you, you're, you're no longer doing this. You hired somebody else. It's, I get it. It's, it's, it's just business. You've made a business decision. It's not personal. So in, you, in one stroke, you, you remove the emotions that you have imbued into the decision and you walk away. And what that email is really good at doing is eliciting a response. So the response is either, yeah, we've hired your biggest competitor or yeah, we've hired, it's the response is the truth. Here's what's really going on. We've hired somebody else or we've just shelved this project. And if the truth is that they're just paralyzed because this is a difficult decision, there's a lot at risk here. <clears throat> You're, I, I can't call you, the client feels like, well, I can't call you and talk, get you to talk me through this because you, you're so invested in this deal. You're not going to give me an unbiased point of view. You're going to try to talk me into hiring you. Right? If that's the reality, by retreating, you will see them advance. They'll say, no, wait, don't go. So the response will be, hey, sorry, I've just been busy. Yeah, um, I'll sign the, 
sometimes it's I'll sign the proposal, but more often it's I just uh, can can we set up a time to talk? So it unsticks a stuck deal. That's the first thing I would have you think about is this idea of have you been a little bit too needy in the sale? Have you imbued too many emotions into the decision? And can you remove those emotions by saying something like, hey, I get it. You're going with somebody else or, or this is no longer a priority. No problem. Uh, if we can help in the future, feel free to reach out. So it's not, I will call you in the future. It's basically, I get it. It's business. You made a business decision. We're all adults here. I'm moving on. But the door's still open if we can help in the future. And there's something about that email that was taught to me over 20 years ago as a voicemail. But there's something about that email that just removes the emotions from that situation and elicits the truth from the client. And if the truth is that they're stuck, there's usually an invitation to proceed in some form to resume the conversation. So that's, if I had to offer one thing, that would be it. Yeah, I, I like that a lot. I mean, and I think to many of us, that might be completely counterintuitive because one, you know, how many, I'll, I'll raise my hand to this. How many of us have acted out of desperation? You know, especially small business owners. Wow, where's the next project going to come from? I'm kind of desperate to get this one, or I really want this one, or whatever. But also, I think um, with many, many clients in this world, there's so much emotion wrapped up in the project itself. Yeah. Right. Oh, this is our dream home. This is our beach home. This is the the first office where you know we've actually had someone design it or our first restaurant you know whatever those things are I think it can be hard to to pull those things apart um, so I, I think that's that's really great advice it may be it may be counterintuitive Jeff but it's not just think it through you're it's not going to kill a good deal it's not going to kill an otherwise it's just going to re reveal information. So as uncomfortable as it may feel or sound, go ahead and try it. I think that idea of revealing information is, is really sort of the, the key to everything that you talk about in One Without Pitching, isn't it? It's This is about gathering information and understanding, which also is, uh, it, it seems like it would be natural. To me, it seems like it would be natural for us to think that way, but I don't think we proceed in that way when we're Oh, you know, here they are. We've got to convince them. Uh, you know, all of these things that we think we have to do, but but that's not the approach of of win without pitching, really. No, one of the proclamations in the manifesto is um, conversations instead of presentations. There's something about all of the creative professions where we go into presentation mode. We get in front of a client. We start showing off our stuff, and I'm not saying we shouldn't show off our previous work, but we go into this mode where we're transmitting and not receiving. And I'm fond of saying you can present to people or you can be present to them, but you can't do both. You have to pick one. And I think if you want to move away from you know what we kind of alluded to before, this idea of selling is talking people into the things and towards this place of selling is helping or facilitating, then you can't have high sunk costs. You can't be emotionally over-invested in the deal. You can't be over-invested in time and money. Because once you are, you can no longer be this pragmatic facilitator of a conversation that really is about what's best for the client. And that's how you want to approach selling. We're all such good conversationalists. Like You wouldn't get to where you are in your, in your life or your professional career without being good at conversation. But there's something that changes. There's a switch in our brain that flicks when the 
when we move to sales, when money gets involved. And if there's just one thing I could do for you, the audience, if I could wave a magic wand, I would just, I would just remove whatever baggage you have in your mind about what it means to sell. I would just remove it all. Everything you've ever heard about selling, if I could just take it away and just say, you're good enough. You'll do. You just show up and be you. Show up and have a conversation. Your job is to help this person. And if helping means them hiring you, great. If it means you referring them to somebody else, great. Just show up and help. Be yourself. Keep it conversational. And as soon as you go into presentation mode, you, uh, you're transmitting, you quit receiving. It becomes very obvious to the client. And if the client sees you transmitting and not receiving, if they see you in presentation mode, that's a sign that, okay, well, you, really, you really want this. That means you're less likely to get honest information coming back. So the whole, our, our framework, I think Shannon may have talked about this, our framework underpins all of our training is this idea of the four conversations. There are four conversations in the sale. Whether there are or not is immaterial. It's a, it's a model that's useful. But throughout the entire arc of the sale, it's all conversational. So if you're retreating to write a proposal, if you're, if you're showing up to the wow moment where you want to wow the client, you're withholding information in advance so you can uh, do the big reveal. All of these things are signs that you're not keeping it conversational. And there are some things that are just built into the way architects work and sell that are um, contrary to this. So it's a bit of a mindset shift. And then you have to figure out, okay, what's the application of this mind mindset? Can, can you share with us what those four conversations are? Sure. So the first conversation is, we call it the probative conversation. And it's where you prove your expertise to the client and you move in their mind from this position of vendor to a position of expert. So we make this helpful generalization that there are only two positions you can occupy in your relationships with your clients and prospective clients. You can be seen as a vendor with numerous direct substitutes. So you have little power in the buy-sell relationship, or you can be seen as the expert. You're seen as meaningfully different and you have some power to push back on the sale. And the key to the probative conversation is that it happens without you present. So it is really a function of your reputation. So the probative conversation is had through your agents of referrers, those best, those best clients who refer work to you. And then it might be thought leadership if you're publishing. It might, so it might be blog posts. It might be designs on Instagram. It might be something on YouTube, whatever it is. So it's your reputation preceding you. That's, so that probative conversation, the first one, that's different from the three subsequent conversations, which are all person to person. They're all like typical sales conversation. Second conversation is the qualifying conversation where you're just vetting the lead to see if there's an opportunity here. Is this a good opportunity for us? Do they meet our financial threshold? Whatever other criteria we have about clients that we will and will not work with. Once they're vetted, so they get past the qualifying conversation, the next conversation is the value conversation. And that's where you endeavor to set price based on the value to be created. Now, in the architecture profession, a lot of it's just a function of the, of the build price. That there, are other, there are things that you can't do that I would talk to an audience of designers and ad agencies about. But the value conversation is really I think mastering the value conversation is the most valuable skill in business. Like aside from your, your domain expertise of architecture, 
the most valuable thing you could learn to do is to have a value conversation because the value conversation gets the focus on ultimately we're trying to set price on value. So we're really trying to get to like, what is the value to the client of this? What, do, what is it that they want and what's that worth? Now, whether you set price on that or not, that's up to you. And then the fourth and final conversation is the closing conversation. It's where you facilitate a decision. You help facilitate a decision with the client on choosing the option that is best for them. Implied in that word option is this idea that your proposal should contain options, should contain different ways to engage us at different price points. So the probative conversation, the qualifying conversation, the value conversation, and the closing conversation. I really appreciate that outline. And we recently read a book, uh, They Ask You Answer in Context and Clarity, where it was fun because he's saying that the new way that people buy pools, because he sells, sells pools, um, it, is that they do all the research themselves. And now you've been in the business 20 years, it sounds like. And so have you seen a similar shift or is that just a write-off to get us out of trying to sell anymore? No, there's been a fundamental shift and it's driven by internet search. So it's like, it's, so the folks who wrote the challenger sale, they commissioned research of some kind that back probably a dozen years ago, they said 56% of the purchasing decision is now made in all B2B sales. So this is business to business is now made before there's any conversation with the salesperson. They think back in the old days, in in the pre-web days, uh, having a conversation with the salesperson was a way to get industry knowledge, find out what competitors are doing, find out who's offering what, what the, you had to have these conversations with various salespeople. Now as a buyer, you don't, you just go online and uh, most of the information that you're looking for is there. You can get a lot of the information that you need to select an architect based on what you see online. And then you can uh, winnow it down to uh, maybe one or two or three, and you have a lot more knowledge today about those um, about those providers or experts that than you did previously. So if you so the big thing that's come out of that is lead generation used to be a function of sales. So this won't make sense for independent architects, um, but you, you understand the concept in a large in a large business. The responsibility for generating leads used to reside in sales. That was the job of the salesperson. So the smile and dial rejection-proof salesperson is who we conjure up when we think of a salesperson. And they needed to be rejection-proof because they were just going through leads, 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 looking for, like turning over rocks so they could find something to eat. And you wanted somebody that, who was tireless at turning over rocks, right? And then once they found something under a rock, now the skills required to navigate the sale, once you have a qualified lead, they're actually quite different. So you want a high drive rejection proof salesperson to generate leads back in the old days. And then you want a calm, patient, discerning with some subject matter expertise salesperson to navigate people through the sale. Hey, we're experts. We do this all the time. Let me walk you through how this is going to work if you choose to work with us especially later in the closing conversation. Closing is really about reassuring, calming people down because of what we've already talked about, people getting kind of worried, buyer's remorse setting in. So if you take, now that most people get most of their information from a buying point of view online, 
and they come to you, or at least this is how businesses are built today, the lead generation function has moved from sales to marketing. Mm -hmm. So that probative conversation is your reputation preceding you. It's through referrals, but also through the content marketing that you do, the reputation that you build out in the world, actually on the web, with the idea of driving leads to you with you already seen as the expert. So that we call it the flip, the moment in time you move from the vendor position to the expert position in the mind of the client, that's already happened. You drive inbound inquiries to you. So if once you take that, uh, the need for lead generation away from the sales function, our definition of what it means to sell and, and what a good salesperson looks like changes entirely because selling is now more like um, the personality profile of a good salesperson today is more like the profile of somebody who will deliver the expertise. They're calmer. They don't have, they're not super high drive. They're more patient. They have domain expertise. They can calm a nervous late stage client down and say, don't worry, everything's going to be okay. We've done this a hundred times before. Let me walk you through our model that explains exactly how we work so you can see yourself in it and you can determine, oh, this is a bulletproof process. Little variability in process equals little variability in outcomes. So there's a lot packed up into, <laughs> into what I just said, but the sales role absolutely has changed because of internet search. We no longer look to salespeople to drive leads in the way that we used to. Therefore, we don't have to hire these annoying people really good salespeople can be calm and patient and not always trying to talk people into. Small firm entrepreneur architects, get ready to build a better business with the Entree Architect podcast where business meets architecture. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, the host of Entree Architect Podcast. Join me every week for inspiring interviews with passionate people that share proven strategies to help you build a better business. If you think there is a problem, one, you can't make a move until you have a plan in place. The accountability chart really helps plan, okay, for the business six to 12 months out, this is what we need. We cover it all from financial management to marketing, sales, productivity, and beyond. There's two sides of it, right? So there's the one when you don't have any work. So you're like, well, I'm either going to charge enough to be profitable or I'm going to go out of business. Or you have so much work and you have backlog and you don't need any more work. So you charge way more. I'd also say lagging measures, one of the best, like the best, best, best. <laughs> so for any client, for any professional service um, company, if you're going to take one thing away from what we're talking about today, is to look at a number called the labor efficiency ratio. Entree Architect is not just a podcast. It's your secret weapon for success. With over 500 episodes, it's one of the longest running architecture podcasts in the world. You're sure to find the information you need to elevate your business. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now and join the community of small firm entrepreneur architects building better businesses. I think that puts some people at ease right now, but, but okay, Blair, I am a small firm architect. It's, it's me and, and a 1099 working with me. I'm wearing 17 hats of the entrepreneur. I don't like turning over rocks. I love being an architectural generalist. 
I rely mainly on referrals, almost completely on referrals, past clients, you know, my cousin who's a contractor, things like that. What happens when things start to slow down? How do I, how do I ramp this back up? How do I, how do I engage what you're talking about in 2023? Uh, because I'm, I'm not the one, I'm not the high drive. I don't like flipping the rocks over. I, I can't stand people saying no to me. How do I keep this firm going? I'm the same way. I mean, I run a sales training organization. I've written a book on selling. I'm writing, a, writing another book on selling, but I, I don't like that, that looking for people to, it's like hunting. I, I don't like the lead generation aspect of selling. So when I launched my business 23 years ago, whenever it was, 22 years ago, I had to make a decision. Well, if I don't like selling, then I'd better be very narrowly focused, right? I, I better, I better narrow my focus so that I can build a depth of expertise rapidly. And those two things are correlated, right? It's broad expertise as an oxymoron. Maybe if you've had 30 years experience, you can get away with a broader claim of expertise. But if you really want to stand out and you really want to get found uh, via internet search, then you should narrow your focus. The, the more comfortable you are with the lead generation part of selling, the broader practice you can get away with. And you also said, Jeff, like, okay, I, I rely on referrals. Well, when somebody says that they're in one of two camps, usually the latter, usually the second camp. Uh, the first camp is we have an active referral strategy. We've studied this and everybody we work with, we have a time when we ask and we have a format for asking. And we're really good at soliciting referrals from our best clients and then closing on some of those referrals. There's almost nobody in that camp. Like the people who do this are, they're just at a, at a different level. They do it almost reflexively or they've just been trained. They've just taught themselves or been taught by others. Always ask, here's how you ask, et cetera. Most people saying I rely on referrals are basically saying the fate of my business is in the hands of other people whom I can't name, people whom I can't name. That's pretty scary. <laughs> yeah, it's entirely scary. Dominate niche, dominate a niche. And then once you dominate a niche, then possibly think about expanding that niche. Going out, if you think of concentric circles, <clears throat> if the niche is typically defined by a discipline, so architecture, but a narrow dis discipline might be residential architecture or it might be home office renovations. Like you, you get tighter and then, so it's a combination of discipline and the market. So, sorry, it's discipline, market. I think of market as verticals. They're not always verticals though. So what do you do and who do you do it for? And if you're finding the selling or the, the building of the business uh, difficult, generating enough leads difficult, then think about narrowing your niche. So when somebody, somebody's not just looking for architect, they're looking for residential architect Denver. So now it's only you and... 120 other architects, <clears throat> or they're looking for architect home office or what other variation you might think of. What happens when I want to expand? I, I like to, so to maybe to to add a little a little tangible to what you were just talking about. One thing I like to encourage people to do is when they're thinking about their niche, narrow it down until you there's only 10 people left. It gets really extreme and it scares architects to think like that. But you know it's Hey, we design restaurants. Okay. Um, how many restaurants are there across North America? There are a lot. 
we 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 design um, uh, independently owned restaurants. Suddenly it narrowed a lot. Uh, I'm in Indiana, in Indianapolis, which is in Indiana. So we designed restaurants in Indiana, just dropped a lot. In Indianapolis, dropped a lot more. Um, independently owned farm to table restaurants with, uh, with 30 tables or less, something like that. And, and some, somehow we got down to, to like 10 restaurants in the city of Indianapolis that that applies to. And now all of a sudden the architects are, are terrified because they can't build a practice on that. But my, my thought was, and I think this, this ties to one of your proclamations. If, if there are only 10 people, today's Tuesday, if there are only 10 restaurant owners left in that mix, you can have a conversation with all 10 of those restaurant owners before the end of this week. And my theory is that if you do that, if you actually do that work and you have those conversations with those 10 owners, you suddenly know more about them and their business than any one of those individuals does because you've got the collective knowledge of those 10. And then I think it also starts to become easy to figure out how this expands back out because those 10, even though they're the whatever, the farm to table independent 30 seats uh, in Indianapolis, they know the ones that are in Cincinnati and Chicago and all the other places that are like them. And they know the ones that have 40 seats instead of 30. And, it, and it's if you're serving them at a high level, they're going to refer you to, to others in, in their network. But but I think that really gets to to um, I've got a, I've got a cheat here. It's the. Um, which which one is it? Um, uh, da, da, we will da, da, specialize. Da. The first proclamation. Will, yeah, it is. It is definitely we will specialize, and 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 also number four, we'll seek to better understand the client. I think it, I think it's both of those combined, right? And I think that's that's really powerful when we're able to do that. Ten, ten's too small. My my sphincter is tightened. That almost never happens. <laughs> um, because you have to do an assumption that you're only going to get what, like one or 2% yeah. of the market, only 5% right. of your client base or prospective client base is going to be in the market at any one time. Sure. Um, but, but the overall point that, um, so I'm fond of saying the target isn't the market. The target is that at which you aim, aim and the market is that which you're happy to hit. So you think of, if you're a golfer, you aim for the pin, aim for the flag, and you're happy to land on the green. So you aim narrow, and if you make a narrow claim of expertise, um, those in related markets looking for related disciplines or looking for related disciplines will also find meaning in what you do. So we do sales training for creative professionals. Every few months, we have a public workshop of, of uh, tw 20 creative professionals show up to go through a four-day workshop. And as more time goes by, there's fewer and fewer creative professionals in there. There are people from creative or marketing firms, and then there are people who are just running AI businesses. There are consultants, there are staffing companies, there are accountants, there are financial planners, et cetera. And so what we don't do is broaden out our claim of expertise to say, um, we do sales training for all professional services and these... We don't keep broadening out our claim of expertise. We lead with a narrow claim and our message gets exposure to uh, people outside of our target market. And then they come to us and sometimes they'll reach out and say, hey, I'm, I'm not in your target market. Do you think there's a fit here? And 
we'll give them an honest appraisal and we'll say, uh, we'll say like, it's, you're going to have to build, sorry, you're going to have to bend our material to your situation. So uh, the onus is on them, but like going off on a bit of a tangent here, it's like, it's your claim of expertise should make you nervous. It's, it's the first test that you need to pass. Are you afraid? Because if you're not afraid, when you try on narrowing your practice, it's probably not narrow enough. Now, you still, I don't know how to translate to this to an architectural business, but I, in a marketing services firm, you'd probably want to operate in a place that has between, you know, in the low thousands of prospective clients, just because of that math of, of uh, uh, not everybody's in the market at the same time, and you're only going to get a percentage of that market when they are in the market. So you can do the math on, you can do the rough math. You probably need um, many hundreds. And even the, the farm to table example, there's probably nothing architecturally about a farm to table restaurant that's different from a non farm to table restaurant. So you have to be careful about the parameters that you use to define the specialization. Yeah. But yeah. that, that even Peter Thiel in his book, Zero to One, which I think might be the, the best like basic business book, it's called Zero to One Notes on what is it? This running a startup or something. Um, he says, pick a niche, dominate the niche. Once you dominate the niche, then look for the ancillary markets, look to expand. Um, the other answer to your question, Jeff, of how do, you, how do you grow? How do you expand? Your clients will grow your practice. Now, I don't know what repeat business looks like in an architectural space, but this works through referrals as well. So you have a declared expertise of X. This happens with us all the time, sales training for creative professionals. Somebody who's in our target market, works with us, has a good outcome. They say to their friend who runs a management consultancy, hey, this isn't exactly your target market, but you should read this book because I think you would really benefit from this. So then they read the book and they decide, no, this applies to me too. So the market is always bigger than that value proposition that you are taking to your target market, which by definition is smaller. Yeah, yeah. I think so. there's some really good comments, if you don't mind me bringing one up that's related. Um, Bonita, kind of related to this idea of specializing, what if you have proven yourself as a specialist in an expertise, but you're not what your client is expecting? If they're expecting a larger firm, it looks like uh, Benita is a sole practitioner. And so uh, the client gets turned off by that fact. How would you start to respond to that? So there's a binary situation here for the most part where either that smallness of your firm is actually a real impediment to you delivering the value that the client seeks or it isn't. And I suspect in the early days of every small business, um, that small business owner has this fear that they're, they're going to be found out about their size. And what you really, I had that fear too. What you really should do is just own it. Just absolutely own it. That fear is nowhere near as real as you think it is. And the way so many businesses work today is just, they have this ability to flex through 1099s, through other contractors, through partners, et cetera. So I would just proudly own the fact that you're a small firm. Um, but you know, on the subject of objections, we um, we have this point of view that yeah, you want to learn to overcome objections, but you're better off create you're you're better off being the party in the relationship that puts the objection on the table 
and ask the client to address it. So if you become aware of the fact that there is an objection, a potential reason not to do business together, you should put it on the table and ask the client to speak to it. So if you're getting this sense that the client really wants to work with a large firm early in the first conversation, you should say something like, hey, before we go too far, um, I get the sense that you're looking to work with a big firm. You need to know that I'm a solopreneur. Pause. It's really important that you pause after that because whatever you hear next will be really important. So I said an objection is a reason not to do business together. You can also think of it as a gap in the, between what the client is looking for and what they think they're going to get from you. And you simply point out the gap. Now, most of you, you try this on, you think, well, that's why would I do that? You, you, want, to, you want to hedge your bet. You want to close the gap. You want to say, I'm a solopreneur, but you know, I'm confident in my ability to do the job. Don't say that. Just say, hey, it seems like you're looking for a big, a big firm. I'm a solopreneur. And the client might say, oh, well, I knew you're small. Like, I, I, assume, uh, I assume you have the, the ability to add like one or two other people. I don't think it would be too many people. It's not that big a project. And then so they start to close the gap and give you permission to close it the rest of the way. And you could say, yeah, we have lots of, lots of contractors we work with, lots of outside partners we could bring in. I've worked on projects larger than this before. It's absolutely not an issue from my point of view. It just seemed to me like it was an issue for you, so I wanted to speak to it. Or they might say, oh, oh, I had no idea. I thought you had 15 people. No, that's absolutely a deal killer. Well, if it's a deal killer, you want to find out now early on. Right. That's brilliant advice. And I think it goes to your point earlier. Uh, I think step number three is communicating your value and being able to leverage those skills and, and what you have going for you to your clients. I love it. Step number three is, not, is or, uncovering the value to be created. That's an entirely different thing. Sorry. <laughs> That's really all about the client. What do you want? What does success looks like? What's the, what's, this, what's, what's the value of this to you? of this new build. Well, the value is I come home, I feel relaxed. I feel I'm willing to entertain again. I'm happy to invite my family home for the holidays. That's the value. In a, in a B2B situation, there might be some economic value, but in residential architecture, all the value being created is entirely personal. What's the value of this to you? And if you can get the client to articulate the value Okay, that's what that's the goal. You want to get we want a nicely designed place that meets all these parameters that you've already listed. And the goal is for you to come home to feel relaxed, to feel empowered, to entertain again, to feel confident and joyful at having the family over for holidays. You want to build a place where family um, gathers and you want to feel proud about it. If you get that out of the client and you repeat it back to them, they will feel heard. That's awesome. Um, another comment we had was, uh, how do you choose that expertise? How do you hone that blade to build that niche? Because I think another article you wrote, you were talking about responding to market conditions and like maybe be willing to question your business model during a recession. When do you choose to switch gears and how do you start to hone it? Are you responding to the projects that are coming your way? Are you responding to your personal passions or the market that you see available to you? Yeah, I, I think the first step is to look at the work that you've done historically, right? What, what's the work that's easiest for, for, for us to win and where maybe that's the most profitable? Start there. But then also, once you've done, once you've finished mining your past, then there are other questions you can ask about your past, but look at what, what you've done historically. Um, 
once that's done, then, um, then try a bit of a fast track strategy exercise and just ask yourself, like, what's missing in the marketplace? Like marketing, there are different definitions of marketing, but the one I heard over 25 years ago that really speaks to me, it's very similar mark definition to entrepreneurship. Marketing is looking at the market, asking yourself what's missing, and then matching a product or service to that need at a profit. That's the definition of marketing. So most people on this call, they're not marketers, they're producers. So those are the two main roles that you can play in business. You, you're either a marketer or a producer. A producer says, I know how, how to produce X, chairs. In this case, it's architecture. I know how to design buildings. <clears throat> I'm going to open a business and hope that I can find a, a, a market. So producers struggle with marketing, marketers str struggle with production. I forgot your question. Just went off on a tangent there. It, it was defining expertise. I think we did a good job of it. Uh, at least a start. It's a hard. It's a hard one to figure out. Um, we have another big challenge from Rick: RFPs. And so this is very common, especially because uh, when public money is involved, an RFP is required because that government entity and nonprofits are required to get competitive bids for even design services. So. I had a personal policy when I started my own business was that I wouldn't do a single RFP and I immediately broke that and I did get the project, but, uh, what, what is your advice <laughs> on the RFPs? So I, I did a speech many years ago now in, uh, I guess it was in Boston. My first question afterwards, somebody said, I was talking about RFPs <clears throat> and somebody said, I live in Washington, DC. All of my governments are, all of my clients are government and not-for-profit associations what should I do? And my answer was move. Um, why would you do that? Why would you, like, if you're at it the is, beginning of your yeah. business, why would you build the, why would you build a business where you have to go through government RFPs? And now, okay, maybe you're, maybe it's your passion, maybe public service is your passion, right? So um, you have to play the RFP game. Now, so Jeff, in the introduction, you mentioned I do a podcast called Two Bobs that I co-host with David C. Baker. I have a second podcast I launched a little over a year ago. It's called 20% The Marketing Procurement Podcast. It's a niche podcast where I and my co-host are interviewing procurement people from the world's largest companies. <clears throat> We're trying to solve the marketing procurement problem. So we get these procurement people giving away all the secrets. And in one of the first interviews we did, we had a procurement person say, something I've always known to be true. He said, oh, I probably shouldn't say this, but um, by the time we go to RFP, over 50% of the time, we already know who we're going to work with. So, so just think about that. You should view the RFP as a game, right? It's a game and you're, you're, trying, to, um, you're trying to get the rules of the game changed in your favor. So let's pretend for a second that you're not focused on public sector, that you, it's mixed. Some is... Some is public, some isn't. You're talking to a prospective client and they say, okay, this is great. You sound great. I'll send you the RFP. When you hear the letters RFP, you should respond like a robot. We don't typically respond to RFPs. Just use that line. It's, a, it's an objection with some leeway in it. We don't typically respond to RFPs. Now, you can't do that with, <clears throat> with government. Then you leave the silence and the client will say, well, why don't you? And Whatever answer you want to give, whatever you, your answer was, Kate, Katie, I don't like them. What, they're a waste of time. They ask a lot of work. They push all the work to us. Um, we just don't find we win them. I don't think it's a good way to hire an architect. 
you know, whatever, there's a lot of like really valid answers. And so if you, if you push back and it can be a different type of objection. And in that situation, the client might say, well, I've got to get three bids. So see you later. Or they might say, if you've, if the probative conversation has has happened through your agents, if you've built some reputation, if you are seen as meaningfully different, you might have some leeway here. You might have some leverage. So the client might say, uh, well, Katie, we'd actually really like to work with you, but there's no way we can do that without issuing an RFP. Okay. So now they're saying the right things. Now we want them to prove it. So we seek a behavioral concession. So we might say, okay, well, as a matter of policy, I don't respond to RFPs, but um, I'm willing to break it for you if you do this for me. So, so whatever this is, information that they haven't shared with others, access to decision makers when you're told access isn't allowed, um, you get to, instead of completing the document that they've sent to you, submit a standard credentials document. We can go on and on. But if you get any form of behavioral concession, you should see that as a sign that they see you as meaningfully different. And I've done a small study on this. Any behavioral concession, your odds of winning go from about one over two N, with N being the number of firms under consideration, to greater than one in two. So, and that's because it's a sign that they see you as meaningfully different. They're willing to bend the rules to you in, in, a, in a little bit. And if you can extract a, a more considerable concession, um, like access to senior decision makers when you're told access isn't isn't allowed, that's a big one. Then your odds go way up. You're almost guaranteed to win. They're saying to you, okay, we really want to work with you and we understand that you don't like this process. We'll bend it a little bit for you and we'll bend it a little bit more. So you should always be seeking a behavioral concession in an RFP. You should always be asking to be treated different in some small way at first, and then maybe ask for a little bit more and a little bit more. And you should see the granting of that concession as an invitation to proceed and a sign that you are more likely to win than you are to lose. And if you do not get the concession granted to you, you should take that as a sign that you are highly likely to lose. Yeah, I, I love all of that. And what I would add to that is, uh, and specifically to Rick, um, I did a workshop a month or so ago with Zach Waters from uh, Black Swan Risk Management. And we talked about the intersection between risk management and business development. And we, we talked specifically about RFP, the, the RFP process of procurement. And um, I, I, I love the statistic that you just, that you just shared there, Blair, uh, because that's not one that I had. Uh, but my encouragement for everybody in that workshop is, if we think about this in terms of a timeline, left to right, um, hey, the, 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 the board of trustees just said there's a project coming six or seven years down the road to the RFP to completion of the project. The more engaged you are at the left end of that timeline, the more likely you are to win. And, and this is, I think that's the area where all 12 of these, uh, well, I think, I think all 12 of the proclamations, um, maybe, maybe I'm a little bit off there, but that's, that is definitely the realm where when it, when without pitching can play in the RFP process because the more more involved you are in the left, if if you if, if you're reading the business news and you see that an RFP came out, forget it. Don't even bother at that point. Right. Yeah. If you weren't part of that conversation somewhere in the left of this timeline, forget about it. It's it's 
I, I would have said it, it's a, a crapshoot, and in the statistic that you just laid out, Blair, makes it even worse. Right? You've got to you've got to be involved. The, the niche, the the specialization, the understanding of your client, all of those things combined with having conversations, combined with the possibility of maybe even uh, being involved in the shaping of that RFP, all of that stuff to the left end of that timeline is critically important if you're going to play the RFP game. Absolutely. That's a great, that's a great question. I'm glad we were able to, uh, uh, to address that. That's a really good one. And I just realized we're past the top of the hour. So we've been going, going at this for a while. Um, Blair, have you got another three hours? Let's just keep going. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is, this is, this has been a joy. Lots of, lots of great, uh, praise for the conversation already. Um, I really appreciate everything that you do, Blair, the, the writings, the podcasts, the, the uh, conversation. We didn't even mention the conversations with Chris Doe on uh, the, the future, F-U-T-U-R, uh, YouTube channel over there. Um, all of it is fantastic. If you have never heard of Blair Ends before, I hope that you listen to this uh, conversation again. I hope that you check out Win Without Pitching. I hope you check out Pricing Creativity, Two Bobs, 20%, all of these things. Uh, because we all need to learn what Blair is sharing here and, and what he and Shannon train us to do in their uh, their training products over at Win Without Pitching. So let me just throw up, I forgot to do this, um, winwithoutpitching.com, bottom left of your screen right now. Go check out what they're doing over there. And uh, you you definitely will not be sorry. Um, the other thing that I, I meant to touch on which, but forgot was that silence, that moment of not even moment, just just letting it lay there and letting it marinate. I heard you mention that, I think, in a conversation with Chris Doe. And I remember thinking, how hard is that? But how powerful is that just to lay it out there on the table and then wait for the other person to respond? Larry, that's you must really be hard great at poker. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have the probability down. <laughs> quite yet he's a card counter <laughs> um so blair thank you for this conversation it's been fantastic katie as always thank you for co-hosting this with me to all of you out there um i've said this for three years now thank you for making context and clarity a thing because without you without you showing up without you wanting these conversations we would not be talking to blair ends today so thank you to all of you for this opportunity um and I say this in closing every time, please be well, stay safe, keep those around you safe and well, take a little bit of time to breathe, relax. We don't do this every day anymore like we used to, but we do this every week. You've got to find a way to rejuvenate, recharge, and get ready for the next conversation here. So uh, next week, having said that, next week on Context and Clarity Live, we will have Will Gudara who is the author of Unreasonable Hospitality. That was the Context and Clarity Book Club book, I think March or February of this year. So I'm looking forward to talking with Will Gadara next week, basically about client experience. Uh, He comes from the restaurant world, so he would call it customer experience, but we can easily translate what he writes about in Unreasonable Hospitality into client experience. So that's what we'll talk about next week. Blair, again, thanks. Really appreciate you for this conversation. Uh, It's been fantastic. And we'll see everybody next week. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Well, what do you think? Did you hear something in this conversation that you can use maybe in your practice or even in your life? 
If the topic of this conversation is of particular interest to you, every week in the Entree Architect Network, I host the Context and Clarity Classroom. It's our weekly opportunity to take what we've learned from our special guests and put those lessons into action in your life and in your work. Find the Context and Clarity Classroom exclusively inside the Entree Architect Network at network.entrearchitect.com. And if you are so inspired by this conversation that you'd like to watch the entire Context and Clarity Live episode, head on over to YouTube. Find the Entree Architect YouTube channel. There's a playlist there that has all of the full Context and Clarity Live episodes. You can also have the Context and Clarity podcast delivered to you every week. Just give us a rating and subscribe wherever you're listening right now. Your likes and your ratings and your shares all help us help other entrepreneur architects like you. And together, they help us build the largest worldwide community of small firm architects. And if you love content like this, check out Gable Media. It's a multimedia network for people that care about the built environment. And it's the home of Context and Clarity. With Gable's growing family of podcasts and video channels, I know that you're going to find something there that interests you. You can learn more at GableMedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. So thanks for listening. I hope this conversation has inspired you to think about how you can build your business into something that allows you to practice the way that you want to practice. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris owners of Level Studio Architecture are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then you know in your head you've rooted like oh i'm connected to these people like long term the process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges demanding meticulous planning flawless execution and unyielding resilience i kind of hate the term because it's so overly used but i think everybody knows imposter syndrome and i think it's it's so real to this day I, i i don't know if it's with everybody but with me i'm always questioning like us? Can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.